This is the East Trauma Cast. The East Online Education Committee would like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous, unrestricted educational grant to support the TraumaCast. Good evening. This is Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We had planned on a two-part TraumaCast series that had both been published, but there's one topic we ran out of time to cover, so we're adding a third part to our series. As Britt said in his presidential letter, the COVID pandemic is the greatest challenge to healthcare in our lifetime. As acute care surgeons, we truly are the Swiss army knives of our medical community. One of the tools we have are years of experience with difficult cases and end of life care. But these upcoming weeks to months are unlike any environment we've ever encountered. I invited Red to switch hats and rather than be a trauma cast moderator, I've asked her to be my guest as a palliative care physician. I'd like her advice on palliative care in the era of a COVID pandemic. Red, would you introduce yourself where you're from and then describe your role and training in palliative care? Sure thing. Hi, I'm Red Hoffman. I'm an acute care surgeon in Asheville, North Carolina. I actually completed a hospice and palliative medicine fellowship as well. Right now, I'm a full-time acute care surgeon, and I do a lot of primary palliative care in my practice on both the trauma side, the EGS side, and of course, in the ICU. I also work part-time as a hospice attending in our local inpatient hospice. So I guess the first question I have is, how are you personally doing? How are you? Well, thank you, Carrie. I appreciate your asking that. How am I? Well, right now I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety. I think I'm in that stage of anticipation because the surge has not hit my hospital at all. I think I'm feeling a lot of anticipatory grief about the losses that are yet to come for myself and for my colleagues and for my community. And lastly, I think like many of us, I'm struggling because my daily routine has been upended. A lot of my coping mechanisms that have supported me throughout the years, close time with friends and colleagues and just being out and about in the community have been taken away from me, like they've been taken away from everyone. So struggling to find that sense of um, comfort inside myself um, has been a challenge, I think, like it is for everyone. Can I ask you how you are, Carrie? Oh, that's very nice of you to ask. Um, I'm coming off of nine days uh, at the hospital and, and we're in the same position that you are. I call it anticipation fatigue. So I work uh, 10-hour shifts, so it's been 90 hours of nonstop COVID conversations, and I just want to talk about something else for a few minutes, and I get it. Uh, Grand Rapids is located almost equal distance between Chicago and Detroit. Every day, everybody's looking at the red circles on the Johns Hopkins map get bigger and closer every day, so we know our wave is coming. We think it's in the next week or two. Um, So yeah, so I call it anticipation fatigue. How am I? You know, I thought I was fine. I thought I was kind of trucking along and things are okay, but I'm part of the WHOOP study and the um, physiology is certainly getting worse. Uh, the hours of sleep needed versus hours of sleep that I actually get when I'm in bed, are that graph is starting to split. So I'm becoming fatigued. Uh, and we haven't even started what sounds like it's gonna be hell on earth. I guess I, I get, for the staff right now, my question's for you with your experience and training is, what are some suggestions you have for the staff nurses, physicians, RT, everybody in the building, even the guy working who doesn't have direct patient contact but has to be in the building. Um, What are your suggestions for how to manage their stress right now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think one thing I really loved about my palliative care training was it really taught me the importance of an interdisciplinary team and the importance of taking care of one another. And that's something that, you know, depending on the day or the week, sometimes I'm really good at and sometimes I'm not so good at. But I've obviously been thinking about that a lot lately, specifically for the nurses who as we talked about the other day, really spend more time with the patient than anyone else. Also environmental services who are really exposing themselves to a great deal of potential danger every time they clean a room. So I've been thinking a lot about them and how do we support them? And then also I think our residents too, who are perhaps young and scared and confused about what their role is during this pandemic. One of those palliative care skills is, of course, just taking the time to sit and listen and really asking, how are you? And then really giving some time to allow someone to answer. I mean, these are times where it's not enough to just say, I'm okay. It's really, I think if we give people time to respond, I think a lot of people will take that time to really answer. So I I think that's one thing is leaving time to check in with each other. Two, I think is saying thank you often to all of these people, again, not just to the nurses, but like to the people who are coming to clean our rooms every day. So I think another thing to do is just saying thank you, um, again, to the nurses, to the environmental services, people, to the patients for their patience with us because I think everything is taking longer and perhaps we're not always at our best right now. So making sure to honor everyone else who's really taking the time to do a good job. Yeah, I um, I get a diet cherry Pepsi every day to go with my lunch that I'm bringing from home. And when I check out of the cashier line, I try to say, you know, thank you for coming to work today. Yep. And it's it's really well received, right? Because they don't have the quote glory spot that you see on social media, but they're still here and it takes a lot of people to run a hospital. Yeah. I mean, they're essential, right? Because they're keeping us fed and we have to eat if we're going to work hard. Right. Um, So as the acute care surgeons, you talk about listening, the residents I'm finding seem to have either hyper fear or hypo fear. And so they, even I feel people who are super smiley or maybe not, concerned, they may be masking that. Have, have you had that experience at your hospital as well? Yes, there's definitely a variety of emotions going on. Again, I think when you really take the time to sit down six feet apart and talk to someone, I, I, I have found people really are, they're, they're scared, you know, and I think rightfully so, it's scary. I feel as far as supporting staff, I feel really strongly that it's my job as an attending to really protect my residents. And so I think we've talked about in other podcasts, making sure that only essential people are in the room. I mean, now it's just, I'm someone who believes very firmly everyone should pre-round in the morning and all this. And now it's just not the time. I think that for these people who are COVID positive or people under investigation, that one person is going into the room and and that's me. Like I don't want to put my trainees at any sort of risk. And I feel really strongly about that. And I think that's one way to be a good leader. And I think that's one way to support them. Well, we talked about on the last podcast, leading from the front, like this Mm -hmm. is not the time to come out, do table rounds, and then go hide in your office for the day. I think we need to be the face in the ICU when all these 
nurses are going in and out of the room, we need to be there for them. One, to help. If there needs to be another set of hands, it can be us rather than another nurse. And then two, just to support them. And again, to thank them. The, the one positive thing about going to work is we still get some social connection. Yes. Right? When, when we, there's a, the trauma surgeon and the EGS surgeons shares a, a, a like a two bed call room in an office at, at my hospital. And when we see each other, we're just so delighted to find another human being to have a conversation with. What about our families at home? Because a lot of our families, they're now at home, not working with the kids, which they didn't sign up for, for some of them. How can we help support our spouses because I'll tell you my family's been gone for two weeks they come home tomorrow it's been nice that the house is quiet when I get home but starting tomorrow I come home and I'm mom and what I might need the most is just quiet time yeah I really have been thinking a lot about this for my partner who is not working right now and so there's a lot of loss there too loss of an income loss of a sense of purpose Um, identity. Yep. And probably a lot of fatigue dealing with my own anxiety. We made the decision that we are not going to separate. And so we're still in the same house and in the same bedroom. And I was joking, I've probably never been so cuddly. I'm someone who tends to be more outwardly lovey at work and um, a kind of a little more aloof at home. And now I'm thinking like all of my attention is coming from this house. We were kind of joking about that, but I just make certain every day to one, to check in with him and to let him know, like, I don't necessarily understand that loss of identity because here we still have an thankfully a job and an identity, but that, you know, you're still an important person in this household. You still are contributing regardless of the fact of whether you can work right now or not, and then try to help him make some goals for the day because we all need to have goals to get through the day. I mean, I just keep thinking how this is going to be a marathon and not sprint. And I think people, our families, are not, many might not work for weeks, if not months. And so we're going to just have to establish some new routine. So understanding that, yeah, I have my own anxiety and I'm very scared. And what I do is quote unquote, very important or whatever, but you know, there's other personalities in, in the household that matter just as much. Sure. My husband and the kids have been at my parents' place and we have nine boxes. Most of them are from Home Depot that have been delivered. So I have no idea what home project he's got planned <laughs> when he gets back. But he's you, apparently you might benefit. some kind of plans are coming our way. One thing I'll add for uh, the kids, I've got a six-year-old and a 14-year-old. And, and what Dan and I, my husband and I have decided is when I come home, the first thing we're not talking about is COVID in the hospital because it's going to get, it's going to get bad. Right. And so that's the anticipation. We're going to come home. Like it's a normal day. How's your day? Things are fine. And unless I'm absolute in a wreck, we're going to first talk about what did the kids do today? What did you guys do today? After of course I shower and decontaminate myself, but just trying to keep it, you know, my six-year-old daughter, we were FaceTiming and, and she was asking me like, how is it possible you don't have COVID mom? You take care of COVID patients all day. And I said, honey, I haven't, I have not yet. I, I'm not taking care of them. I will, but I'm not yet. And so she, just from the t- conversation amongst the adults, has a little bit of stress or concern or questions about, well, when is mom going to get sick? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's one of those things about our job in general. There's just some things that I think are better left spoken about, perhaps amongst our colleagues. There's some stresses or sometimes some awful things that we see that we don't necessarily need to take home to our families. I think a lot of us are blessed with 
amazing colleagues where we can really discuss a lot of our trials and tribulations with them. And I think that even though we might not be seeing them as much and might not have that daily contact, there's still the phone, there's still Zoom parties. We need to make other ways to connect with that network of support that has supported us for so many years in our career. I think our spouses and our partners and our uh, kids will go crazy if they have to hear about this every day for months yeah. on end. Yeah, sure, sure. So let's talk about some of the stuff you know we're going to deal with at work. One of the biggest changes in healthcare right now is that many hospitals have voluntarily or mandated severe restrictions on visitations. Do you have some restrictions at your hospital? Yes, we have no visitors allowed except for pediatric patients. You can have one visitor. I think a laboring woman can have one person in the room and then end of life. But end of life is a very challenging word definition. because what exactly, yeah, definition, because what exactly does that mean? Because you, when I think about end of life, I often think about hours to days, sometimes few and far between when I think, okay, this person's going to die within the hour or two, you know, a lot of times we are wrong. And so how does that translate? And then the visiting restrictions are very challenging for the COVID positive patients or those patient people under investigation. Now they don't want anyone in the room. And so those people, as we've talked about, and people are talking about throughout the country are, are having to die by themselves. The ones that, that are not dying, and even my own patients, I'm on a, a EGS right now, I'm finding that rounds are taking longer because the patients are so lonely. They just want to talk to any human being about, I mean, we can talk about anything. It's okay. It takes longer because we have the time to do it right now. The other emotion I'm finding for my patients is the anxiety. So someone, you don't have someone with you moment by moment to help calm you down. We're, I just diagnosed a cholangiocarcinoma on a patient with an obturator obstruction, there's no one to sit next to her to even talk about this with, except for the medical staff that comes into her room. How would you advise the acute care surgeons who are, who are going through these kind of experiences? Like we, we've kind of become immediate palliative care doctors. We know how to manage this. We've done this before, but usually we also have family to support quite often. And we have plenty of palliative care team members to, to lean on for support. But we are going to become kind of resource constrained with you all. So what are some tips you have for kind of explaining difficult situations to patients who are alone and kind of helping them manage their emotions through it? Yeah, well, as Nick said on our part two podcast, now is not the time to be hiding in your office. I found that last week when I was on the EGS service as well, the census is down. And so I spent Oh, three or four hours rounding. Again, it's making the time to sit and talk to our patients. That's part of our job that I often feel like is, well, not often, but sometimes lost in surgery. I'm their surgeon. Well, really you're their surgeon and you're their doctor. And so you're in charge of not only their physical well-being, but their emotional well-being. I was just so touched. I always ask people, how are your spirits? That's like, kind of what I ask people and two different young men, you know, probably each less than 40 years old. When I asked, they just started crying like these big tears, because like you said, they're totally lonely. They don't feel good, right? You're in the hospital. So you don't right. feel good. They're very anxious about what's going on outside the hospital. 
and they're anxious about their own health. You know, both of them were there for non-COVID things, but still their health and they're still scared. So I think one is taking the time. And these are like basic palliative care principles. Sit down. Now, often for me, I like sit on their bed. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm a big fan of rubbing people's feet or holding their hands. I'm, I'm not doing that anymore, but I still pull up a chair near their bed, six feet away, and sit down and take the time to talk to them. Because again, we are one of the few people that they see during the day. I've also been making sure that the whole are, you know, I've been asking my residents to come to, because again, these are non COVID patients and not persons under investigation. So I still feel like it's okay to be going in the room to really be doing afternoon rounds as well, which, you know, sometimes on a very busy service, you don't get to, or sometimes I will do them and, or I'll send the intern. So we're not all going, but making sure that we're checking back in the afternoon and going again. And again, taking taking the time to go for walks with people, like doing these things that I often ask the families to do. Like I'll ask the family, can you please mm. feed your mom lunch? Can you please get her up to a chair? Because sometimes the nurses are busy. Can you please get these people to go for a walk? And so doing that for them, because again, we have the time and we're there. So we might as well make it worth it. And then I've been really offering to call all the family members. You know, sometimes I will do that for certain patients already, but I've been trying to offer to call everyone if they want me to. So sometimes we're just calling while um, I'm in the room. We just put the family on speakerphone so that I could be updating them and getting their questions. Yeah, we've been, um, for trauma, EGS, um, burn, and SICU, we're, we're doing our best as we can. Based, like yesterday, I had five cases, 18 patients, and three consults. So yesterday was just like on fire, normal EGS day. Today, I had no cases, same census, but I just had to round and write notes. And so we've been doing our, our best to have either the attending fellow or chief resident call and give an update. And then we're documenting it in the chart. And we actually made it, if anyone uses Epic, a significant event note. That way you can sort the notes by type and all the significant events every day come up. And you can just click through quickly and see what the conversations have been for the past few days. Oh, that is a great idea. Yeah. So when we change over service, for example, tomorrow's my last day on EGS. When my partner takes over on Friday, they can look back at the past three days and see, you know, what is Sarah concerned about? If her biggest concern is medications or labs or, or how's her father doing? Like I can kind of pick up where that emotional conversation left off and be prepared. I can look through the chart. If Sarah asks about the CBC every single morning, I can make sure I've got the chart open on the CBC and I've got the numbers in front of me. If she's more concerned about physical therapy, I can look at the physical therapy notes before I call. And we're just trying to give them some connection. My experience with the patient's families so far has been 90% are extraordinarily grateful that we even took the time to call and they totally understand the restriction. We have, the, we have very similar restrictions for visitors that, that you described. There have been a few families that are extremely frustrated and they're angry. And I'm, I struggle with that because I can't, I can't see them. I can't see their body language. I can't see the nuances. And the, the problem is the phone call is inadequate in their view. Do you have any suggestions for how to kind of manage the frustrated family member when, when they can't come into the hospital? Yeah, it's funny. I was just reviewing um, again on, on our part two podcast when um, Nick was speaking last night about the Vital Talk handout. So, Vital Talk is this great program that came out of uh, Seattle that 
a lot of palliative care providers have completed. It's all about communication. And so they came out with a several page document to address all of these issues that are coming up during the COVID pandemic. One of the things they say a lot, and this is typical palliative care talk, is when people are expressing their emotions, it's just to acknowledge them. So I hear you're really angry. Tell me more about that. Give them the space rather than trying to argue back with them. Well, this is how it is right now. Well, tell me more about that. And then two, a couple of times I said, do you want to talk to me on FaceTime so that we can have like a little more of a connection? Because I'm willing for you to see my face so that we can just feel like we're connecting more. And sometimes I feel like when they see you, this person who's also really, I too am struggling for them. I feel awful for them. It mm -hmm. has like diffused some of the situation. And then when I bring the, I said, well, let's bring the, let's bring the phone in the room so that me, you, and your loved one can talk. It seems to diffuse it even more. So mm. I've, I have done that a couple of times. I Are you doing do this on your personal cell phone or has your hospital set up tablets of some kind? No, I, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but I use my personal cell phone. I mean, there's certainly ways to block the call. You can do star six, seven. And so they can't see your phone number, but you know, one of the surgical oncologists that I trained with in medical school that was the first person I ever saw give out their cell phone number. And then I saw several people that I really respected throughout my training do it. And something that I tend to do, I have been doing it for 10 years now, and I've not ever had anyone abuse it. I mean, I realize that there is the potential for abuse there. I also think even in the best of times, it is so useful for people's families and patients too, to have a connect to their doctor. But I've been noticing more during this time than I'm giving out my phone number more for all, it's a little off topic, but for all the people that I called, I was in clinic last week and I called a lot of people and said, do you really need to come to clinic? So we did kind of a, a pre-screening. And then for, there were several people where, mm, I don't know. I said, just call me on Monday morning and let's just check in. Or I had one patient actually want to take out her own staples. Her daughter was an EMT. <laughs> she sent me a picture of her wound on, on the phone. And then her daughter brought staple remover off of Amazon and took out the staples. You know, I, the, it was, they were ready to come out. It was two weeks. They were ready. The wounds looked great. And then she sent me a picture the next day and I just said, great job. And to me, I feel like it's such a scary time. If my being available to them eases some of their anxiety, I think that's part of my job. Yeah. So you and I haven't been in it, so we're going to be playing a little bit of what ifs. The anticipation, I think, for most major cities is at some point there'll be a COVID wave and some intense ICU um, resource distribution. So if we're in that situation and the hospital has criteria for which patients are going to be taken off the vent, right? So let's say we have 50 people who need a vent, we only have 40 vents, right? So 10 people need to come off. There may need to be criteria listed. And if a patient meets those criteria, when, when in a resource flush time, we would otherwise keep them on the vent. And we need to now call these patients' families at home, tell them we're going to take them off the vent. Maybe the outcome is going to be that they're going to die from this. Oh, and you can't be here. How do we explain this concept to the families? Do we even start bringing up the fact that we're, it's a resource issue, not a patient individual issue? Like, how, how do we even start to have these conversations? So can we just back up a little bit? Because I think sure. knowing that 
we all might get there and that some of our colleagues are already there. I think it really, it's important to talk about what's happening before these people get on the vent. Because a lot of these, I mean, when you look at now there's been several papers put out about allocation resources. You know, there's a great one that was put out by New York State in 2015. And then there was one published by New England Journal of Medicine and another published in JAMA this past week. And then the American College of Surgeons just put one out, I think, yesterday talking about resource allocation. All of them are, are slight, a slightly different bent. But certainly, Beyond this pandemic, we know at the beginning who is more of a quote unquote well person and who is more of a sick person. So what I'm thinking is as these, and this doesn't fit for everyone, but let's say as these older patients with comorbidities are coming in and are either in respiratory failure or we can tell they're going to go into respiratory failure, what kind of conversation are we having up front? Because we should be having these conversations all the time as we're talking to people up front who are going to end up being intubated, one, discussing, did we ever discuss advanced directives? And that, again, is the families might not be in the emergency department. And I acknowledge, too, that we might not be able to be part of that conversation because they might be in the emergency department and then get shipped upstairs to the ICU. But if we have that luxury of time talking about, have you all ever talked about this before? And now I think as this is pandemic is ramping up, I think more and more people are talking about their wishes. And then two, I ask every single person who's ever intubated, I just ask them, have you ever heard of a tracheostomy? And have you ever talked about a tracheostomy? And would you be willing to accept one? And I have been surprised. There are some people who have actually thought about these things and they can tell you, no, if I needed one, I wouldn't want one. So I try to get up front where their limits are. And then I also always, even if I'm about to intubate someone, try to clarify code status. Because if you think about CPR, I always think about, I saw this on Twitter and I loved it. CPR being for when the heart stops first rather than for when the heart stops last. People and families respond to it well. But if you're already on the vent and then you have an arrest, the majority of the time things aren't going to go well. So I try to clarify up front, even if we're willing to be intubated for a respiratory issue, would you even want CPRs? I just want to back that up because my hope is that some of these people have had these conversations. When we're talking about resource allocation, I don't have a great answer. The New York guidelines clearly say that a physician taking care of the patient should not be the one making these decisions, that there should be a triage officer or a triage yeah. committee that's perhaps made up of another physician, a medical ethicist, or someone who has a great understanding of respiratory physiology. The reality is, is I don't know how many hospitals have this in place. And I think we know from talking to our colleagues, some of them are being kind of forced into making these decisions. But I think when we're talking to families, the reality is the people who are coming off the vent are the people who are doing the worst, right? We're not taking, or the people that we assume are not going to be surviving because that's how we're stratifying these people when we talk about resource allocation. So I think initially starting with this kind of reviewing like we do in palliative care, this is where we've been so far, this is what's happening, and this is what I think is going to happen in the future. Because my other feeling is resource allocation doesn't just happen one day. We know it's coming down, right? We know that Uh in a day or two, we're going to run out. So in a day or two, we may need to be 
talking about, okay, we're going to have to allocate these resources. So we need to be having these daily conversations, updates with families. All right. Well, now we've been on the ventilator for 10 days. And also let, I just always ask patients to tell me what's been going on the year before this, because again, the people that we're thinking are going to do the worst, obviously came in or the, for the majority of them, I would assume are coming in with other comorbidities. What did life look like before that? And so it, I think it's a lot of time up on the front end, talking for days, kind of setting that stage. Hey, I think that the difficulty that, that causes me to wake up in the middle of the night is I don't have experience with this. So my comfort care versus continuing full medical care conversations are usually in my experience, I've seen dozens of this and I think that blank is going to happen. And so I don't have that warehouse of information to kind of predict. I know who's going to do well and who's going to do poorly. And I think we're also seeing with this virus in particular, like we talked mm -hmm. about on the last podcast, is that people might be doing well that, or they're getting slightly better and then they get worse again. We yeah. know that they're needing a very long time on the ventilator, whereas before I might do a time-limited trial on someone. Well, is it fair to be, you know, sometimes my time-limited trials may be three days or five days. Well, now we know that people, if people are requiring two weeks on the vent before they're showing improvement, are we not even giving them a fair enough shot to begin with? But again, I come back to how were they doing beforehand? So this is not going to be an easy conversation in someone who is 50 years old and rather healthy and then ends up on ECMO and, and it, which is really resource intensive. And so, and, and we're not expecting to survive, but had a full functional life beforehand. That's not mm -hmm. that conversation. I don't have any experience with either, but yeah. I will, I think I'd say to all of our listeners again, to think that the burden has to just be on one of us as a um, physician or a surgeon, is it's just not fair. So that is where I would call in either another colleague or this is a place for specialty palliative care. We should be doing a lot of the primary palliative care during this pandemic. This is a place to at least, not that all palliative care doctors are specialized in ethics, the majority of them don't but at least to get some support during this very difficult conversation. You can't sure. be expected to do this by yourself. So let's, um, let's move on to the end of life because it's not just COVID patients, it's all patients. If I have a patient with a severe TBI, he's going to go comfort care. Their families can't come be with this patient. If their family can't be there because currently with COVID restrictions on visitation. How do we talk to those families about comfort care and trying to explain what some of them may feel is injustice? Like, why can't I come be with them? Regardless of where you are, you need to understand what your resources are. I'm not talking about in the hospital, but perhaps in your community. So if you have some local inpatient hospices, like what are they doing right now? One, are they taking COVID patients? And two, are they still staffed enough that they could take non-COVID patients? For me, we'll say like bad TBI. Often my thinking has always been, okay, if they want to move to a comfort-focused approach, I'll terminally extubate. And then I'll usually keep them in the ICU and I'll say, okay, if they're if they're quote unquote stable the next morning, then we'll move to an inpatient hospice. But perhaps doing that sooner 
because in our local hospice, their visitor restrictions aren't as stringent right now. So that's an option for right now where you can still have visitors. Doing that with the understanding that they could certainly die en route. People are so fragile that they desat when you turn them. So they can certainly, some of them could die en route. But I do think that's an option and trying to figure out if that's an option in, in your community is worthwhile. Then too, many hospitals have no one dies alone programs, but I think a lot of there's, most hospitals don't have volunteers right now. But again, this is where we use our workforce. So our residents aren't super busy right now. Well, they can certainly sit in the room and hold someone's hand while they're dying. Because oftentimes if the family can't be there, what's the next thing that people think about? I don't want my loved one to die alone. If your loved one is dying, you want to be there. But if that's not possible, is it possible to have someone else in the room? And again, I'm talking about our non-COVID patients. Three is using, and I use this a lot anyway, is using your iPhone or using whatever, if you have a tablet in the room, and then you and the family member can be in the room. This is, you can still set some stage for that patient. What's their favorite music? Okay, I'm going to leave my phone or someone's phone in there. I'll figure out how to get it playing so that they have that. And then two, I'm going to commit to trying to have someone there. Our medical students are in the hospital right now, but I would think too, like if they were there, that's a good, you know, it's a, it's a hard experience, but it's such a meaningful experience to be with someone at the end of life. So sometimes, I mean, I've had to sit in for family members before because they couldn't get there. So now's the time to hunker down and be in the room with people. Yeah. This has been a great conversation so far. Are there any other thoughts that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to highlight for our East members? Oh, one of the things I was thinking that's kind of along the lines of, I said, I, I like to ask people to clarify their limits before taking certain steps. So again, before I intubate people, I like to know if what I clarify what their code status is and if they would w- be willing to be traked. And then also as we're getting ready to extubate these COVID people talking again about would they be willing to be reintubated or is this a one-way extubation? So again, just making sure everything is clear before we go to that next step, I think is really important. My other thing that I feel is really important, and again, this focuses mostly on our non-COVID patients, but you know, we're all still getting traumas. We're getting EGS patients. A lot of our patients end up going to either skilled nursing facilities or to rehab facilities and making sure that everyone has advanced directives. Now, the difficulty we're having in our hospital right now is something like a living will. One, you need two witnesses. Right now, our hospital is saying that those witnesses cannot be anyone who works at the hospital. Well, there's not a lot of other people walking (laughs) around, so that makes that difficult. And then in North Carolina, your living will needs to be notarized. And I don't know, we usually have notaries, but I don't know how available they are in the hospital right this second. However, certainly everyone could go with, in in North Carolina, it's called a most form. In other places, it's called a post form. Everyone should be going with one of those. I, I mean, everyone should be going with one of those anyway. But, you know, that form is so powerful because not only does it go over your code status, It talks about what your limits of care are as far as whether you would want to be in the ICU, whether you would want a feeding tube, antibiotics, IV fluids. And this is something that needs to be clarified with everyone on the way out the door during this time. Plus it just opens the conversation, right? And if you can't have that conversation 
with the person, then you could have it with the family member. Yes, again, it takes time, but I think it's worth it. And then all it requires is a doctor's signature. The healthcare power of attorney or the patient does not have to sign it. There's a place where they can sign it, but it doesn't require a signature. I'm sure there's different rules for all the states. It'd be helpful to brush up on a little bit of that. So there's a great national post website and it has a state by state. You could click on your state and it takes you to your state's post form and the directions for that form. And I think that would be great to put in the show notes. One thought, you know, our, our hospital has surged additional ICU bed plus our regular ICUs plus the floors. And we don't consult palliative care on every single patient in the building. And it sounds like for a lot of patients in the building, we're going to need palliative care help, but there aren't going to be enough of you. How would you suggest we get prepared for some of these conversations? Like there are some hospitals that rely very heavily on palliative care to have goals of care and end-of-life discussions. If, if that's one of your hospitals, are there websites or places we can go to kind of get a little update or briefing on emotions and how to have these conversations? So the Center to Advance Palliative Care, CAPSI.org, has a great quote-unquote COVID toolkit But within that toolkit, they're actually giving away so many of their free trainings about communication, which goes, again, way beyond this pandemic, as well as symptom management, because I think it's important to remember that palliative care is not just about goals of care and code status and end-of-life care. A lot of what palliative care does is offer symptom management, often in combination with disease-modifying treatment. They have this great toolkit where you can go over, oh yeah, how do I manage dyspnea, with a, which a lot of our patients may be having. And you can manage dyspnea and still give disease-modifying or um, life-supporting treatment. This is not just for people who are at the end of life. How do I manage uh, malignant bowel obstruction? How do I manage nausea and vomiting beyond Zofran and Phenergan? So that is a wealth of information. And there's also a lot of great communication skills in there. And then again, Vital Talk website is also great because it actually, I actually have it up now and it really goes over when limitations force you to choose or even ration, what can you say? Like has a great chart that focuses on everything that people may be saying to you during this time, including like what we brought up before. My family member doesn't have COVID. I don't have COVID. Why can't I come in the hospital? All these really difficult discussions that we're being called to have. And then lastly, I just like always love to remind surgeons, we know how to do this. These skills are not rocket science on any level. They just take a bit of practice, a bit of patience, and just some time. Jeff Dunn, he, who's like, I call him like the father of surgical palliative care. He wrote this thing a long time ago, uh, comparing the family meeting to a surgical procedure in which we prepare, do, and close. And so I always try to teach my trainees about that too. You know, it's, we shouldn't be cavalier about these conversations. Just can't walk in and have a family meeting. You do have to go through the chart. You do have to understand what the other consultants are thinking. You do have to have an idea of the patient's history so that you could put the whole thing into context. But you can do that. You know, you can take that time to do the preparation. And so I think that this fits well with our Swiss army knife approach of acute care surgery. It's just leaving the time to do it. And then I am always available 
via email or phone to talk about it. Because I, I really believe that we are all built to do this. We might not all enjoy it, but we can all do it. And you're, you're being very modest. I want to give you an opportunity to tell us about the podcast that you host that's on palliative care. Sure. So I started a couple months ago, the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. And so it was meant to, one, be a place for me to interview the founders and the leaders of surgical palliative care, but it's also meant as a place to learn about how to do these primary palliative care skills. Because again, I think all surgeons should and can do these. Now, again, in quote unquote normal times, a lot of people are busy and in the operating room, but now is the time to work on these soft skills because now a lot of us have the time so we can step up and that's how we can contribute to this because I think our palliative care colleagues are at least where um, surges are happening are just, they're so underwater, they just can't. It's not appropriate anymore to be calling, can you check the code status on this patient? No, that's our job now. Yeah, sure. Well, Red, I don't know about you, but I feel better and more relaxed now than I did when we started this conversation. Maybe it was just nice to talk to somebody who's kind of in the same anticipation fatigue mode. And I, I really like your advice to keep talking to each other and, and truly checking in, not just, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, I feel great. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Well, again, thank you for the time. <laughs> thank you, Carrie, for having me. This is really fun. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the East.